church. We'll do a little bit of prophecy Focus global update tonight and then get into our study of Acts 19. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you for giving us the truth uh, that we can re- rely on and rest on. Uh, I thank you for uh, this night. Please uh, just watch over us as we uh, open the Bible together. And I just pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit has for us to learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, a couple things by way of announcements and comments as we open up. Please uh, pray for Pastor Rich and Valerie. Um, They'll be traveling home later this week, so just pray for safety for them. And then also, um, on behalf of our family, I I think I said this in one of the Sunday services, but I just wanted to say thank you very much to our church family for the wonderful blessing of the many meals Um, that we have received. Everything's been delicious and more than enough. So there's been lots of leftovers from everything. So thank you very much for providing for us uh, in that way. And um, as Rachel recovers. And then I also wanted to make mention of the upcoming Trail Ridge Camp work trip. Um, Rachel and I are going, and then there's two others that are going so far. So we have four so far that are going. Um, There's room for more. I think they can have up to 10 or 12. So if you have any interest in going to a camp and working for a week, um, there is, uh, you, you won't be sleeping in cabins. With Let's try again. They do have uh, air-conditioned space for volunteers to stay. Uh, so, and then the, the work will include, uh, as has been announced, but there's kitchen help, there's housekeeping, there's grounds, maintenance stuff. It's kind of whatever f- skill set you kind of have and what you're interested in, in doing, uh, it's available. So... All right, so anyways, if you're interested in the trip, you want to go with us, please let me know. We're looking for a few more folks to go. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of work, but also a lot of fun, and uh, yes, okay, the dates, thank you, because I was going to say that and forgot, Monday, July 10th through Saturday, July 15th. If you're interested in going, there is an online application. It's not through our church, it's through the camp. So I need to send you the link via email. So um, if you're interested, let me know. I'm your contact for that and I can send you the link and you just fill out the forms and things. Uh, You do need to have some references and different things, but 
pretty standard procedure, I think, for most types of ministries like that. So if you have any interest in that, uh, just let me know, and I can answer questions and uh, send you the link if you would like it. Uh, this evening, we're going to continue um, with this um, Prophecy Focus Global Update, looking at the issue of transhumanism. And I know this is, some of this is like, sounds like science fiction, and it's, it just sounds really bizarre, and it's like, why are we talking about this? Um, uh, the major issue that we're looking at here comes out of Revelation 13. Pastor Rich has been over this a number of times. If you've been here for a little while, you've, you've heard these things, how that uh, the world will, will change from having um, separate countries, independent states, if you will, um, across the world to one world government, one world economy, and one world religion. It'll all come under one ruler who we would refer to as the Antichrist. The, um, the Bible sometimes refers to him as the beast. And so um, that's going to happen. And, and we've been looking at the artificial intelligence issues. And the, the biggest issue that we're looking at actually that comes out of Revelation 13 is the abilities of the image of the beast. So I want to take us to a verse out of that out of that chapter to help us understand a little bit about um, why we're talking about this. So in Revelation 13, 15, it says that he, now the he there is speaking about the false prophet. Okay, there's, a, there's the beast and then there's this other beast that has the two horns. And um, I didn't put the whole passage, but you can read about it there in Revelation 13. Um, and so this is talking about the false prophet, the one that comes alongside and, and and, and basically tells everyone, hey, worship the beast. And actually, uh, he's the one that grants power to give breath to the image of the beast. So they'll set up this image. What kind of an image will it be? We're not giving a ton of details, but we've been looking at some of the artificial intelligence and some of the things that are um, happening around the world and looking at the potentially um, that will be some of what is used. Um, notice that what the image of the beast does, this is not Satan per se, specifically, it's not the Antichrist, it's not even the false prophet. It, this is the power that's given to the image of the beast, okay? The Im, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed, so we often look at the Antichrist and, and the false prophet as, and they're, they're kind of, the, along with Satan, the satanic trinity. But this image of the beast is going to be, is, is what is going to be doing these things. It will be speaking. It will somehow be able to process information, think, if you will. It will speak. It will talk. And it will act on the data that it processes to the point of killing those who don't worship the beast or the image of the beast. So you see this, this image somehow has the power to do this. How will that happen? Will it happen through uh, the te technology of artificial, excuse me, artificial intelligence? Will this transhumanism play into that? These are the kinds of questions that we're asking. So that's why we're talking about it. Um, the other issue is that what's the purpose of the 
transhumanist movement. It's to extend life, right? It's to avoid death. It's to make us superhumans with um, not artificial intelligence per se, but artificial body parts and implants in our brains that can process information and learn these skills and all these things. It's to basically make ourselves live forever. That's, that's the idea behind it. Um, but in Matthew 24, 22, it says that unless those days, speaking of the tribulation, should, uh, were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So here's the deal. Um, the majority of the world's population will die during the tribulation, transhuman or not. So the point is that even though man wants to conquer death, man wants to build himself up and become these superhumans, if you will, and kind of rule, rule the world or, or uh, conquer the weaker humans or whatever it is, they're not really going to succeed ultimately. Um, and so that's part of the reason that we're looking at this, uh, this issue tonight. So again, transhumanism, um, it will change the world. That's, that's the title of the video. Again, these are all transcripts taken from uh, the video that uh, Pastor Rich was talking about. Um, we looked at the first 11, so I'm going to scroll through those. Uh, let's see, let's get up to where we are today. Uh, we left off at number 11, so let's look at number 12. Uh, we could bring people back from the dead. So this is, again, <laughs> it's like, Really? <laughs> Yes, this is what's being proposed. This is, the, this is all in theory right now. Um, when, you, when you think about the, the quest for life, looking for the fountain of youth, looking to really avoid eternity and to stay on this world and live this life as long as possible, um, this is one of the goals. How would they do this? By enhancing the bodies, by enhancing our minds, by um, people that are clinically dead, if there's not a lot of tissue damage and things, um, bringing them back from the dead. They're, they're talking about uh, uh, situations where uh, people have chosen to kind of freeze uh, their, their bodies, like cyrogenically or whatever, uh, to bring them back uh, to life using this kind of technology. Will they be able to do something like this? Don't know. Um, I do know that it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. That's what scripture tells us. So um, how much success will they have? Limited, limited. As we stated before, according to Matthew 22, most of the world's population uh, will die and there's not gonna be any bringing them back from the dead at that point. Uh, let's, let's look at a couple others. Humans could heal more rapidly. Uh, so uh, we could be looking at, again, we talked I think before about the replacement of uh, body parts, organs, limbs, um, different things like that. So we have said this before. Some of these things sound really pretty good. I mean, positive. You think about uh, the healing process. Um, and some of you have um, had uh, injuries and different things where the healing process takes an extended amount of time and you find yourself wishing that it would speed up and get back to normal life. So, I mean, there's a good selling point with this, uh, but, but is that exactly what's going to happen? Um, th this is what they're, they're wanting to do. It's what they're projecting. Um, but again, 
Uh, it's not necessarily what is going to happen um, as far as reality. Uh, when, when they get to this point, can, can humans be healed more rapidly? Well, we've already seen some um, you know, advances in medicine. Think where we were like 100 years ago or something like that, where uh, the medical field is right now and how people are in and out of the operating room and back home within like some same day, you have the day surgery area in the hospital. That's like a whole wing that was never thought of 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And so we have advanced greatly in um, the medical field and we have, um, you know, come, come a long way, um, but this is going to another level. Um, so we're looking at, uh, number 14, you could, now this is, again, this is, sounds very science fiction. Um, upload our minds to new bodies and have convergence of fields such as artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and bioengineering. So, again, um, I've seen this in, like in comic books. I don't know if you've seen that, like, where an individual uploads their consciousness into like a hard drive or something like this. Um, this is what they're talking about doing. Um, again, will they succeed in this? Um, I don't think they will personally, but this is what they're going to be promoting um, as, as they go forward. And what I'm looking for right now is my transcript, which I didn't bring out here with me. So... Um, let me, let me try to find that really quick because I know that some of it I, I'm going to want to read uh, to you. And if I can't find it, I might just skip this part and go into our study. Um, oh, here we go. Number 14 is what we're on here. So this would um, open up new possibilities for different forms of consciousness and existence. Uh, some people may even prefer a robot and synthetic fibers. That's especially in cases where their biological bodies are older, they have handicaps and impede their progress in some areas. So again, there's a lot of, quote, positivity with this and possible good outcomes. But again, we asked this last week, where's the, where's the boundary? Where's the ethical boundary? At what point do you cross into an unethical type of uh, situation. Number 15, uh, transhumanism will enable new forms of cyber crime to bring unsuspecting victims to eavesdrop. And I think that's a typo, sorry. Uh, it's, they're not eavesdropping on their dogs, okay? Um, <laughs> but to eavesdrop and show their thoughts, erase memory, and control their body movements. So um, again, this is one of the potentially negative um, things that could come about when um, this type of technology is taken advantage of by, by criminals. Uh, the criminal mind is, is uh, restless. It's always looking for the, the next thing, the next potential technology to take advantage of. Um, how many of you get tons of telemarketer calls? That's not really criminal activity, but it feels like it because it's just like, leave us alone. Um, but you think about um, the ideas like um, stuff that is criminal, like uh, identity theft. That's, that's a major issue. When people's identities are stolen, um, their credit card information, their social security number, um, and other personal uh, important information 
taken. Well, if we have uh, humans with these implants in our minds that are connected to the web constantly, um, if you can connect to the web, the web can connect to you. It's a two-way connection. So um, at what point will that, will that happen? Um, and criminals will have no problem taking advantage of that. Um, think of having memories erased. Think of having their body movements even controlled. Um, in some cases, this could lead to damage. Uh, like people with robotic arms and legs will have that super strength. We talked about that in the workplace being a good thing, but you could think about the potential of causing considerable damage to others. Um, In other places, then, we would need to have law enforcement that's exponentially more advanced and powerful to deal with these additional threats in society. So it's like, where does this stop? Um, And how far will will they end up taking this? Uh, Number 16, uh, fully enhanced dictators could gain access to the best cybernetic gear and cause more harm to the world than ever before possible. Um, So think of um, someone that has a brain-computer device that's connected to other minds, allows them to read thoughts um, using AI threat detection systems integrated in their minds. their minds could be uh, integrated with super intelligent AI, allowing them to formulate incredibly creative and effective ways to suppress uh, things uh, and people and situations. Uh, there's a good chance this could result in millions of civilians having thoughts and emotions read and analyzed. Um, I think of like places where, and we have a lot of public cameras here in America and facial recognition. And this is like going a step further than that and constant surveillance uh, even even into the mind, into the implants in the mind. Um, <clears throat> uh, think of the genetic, genetically engineering super soldiers, military uh, that are patrolling. They're on every street corner in countries. Even if they died, it'd be nearly impossible to truly get rid of them because they can store multiple backups of their consciousness. They could upload to robotic and synthetic bodies at any time. So like almost an undefeatable army potentially if, if these things are, are able to move forward and become a reality. Uh, number 17, get to create super soldiers. So we just mentioned that a little bit, but think of um, uh, frontline soldiers that are genetically engineered, have multiple forms of cybernetic enhanced brain-computer interfaces that are integrated into military command and control systems, enabling seamless communication. Again, this is stuff that we have seen in science fiction movies and, and things like this. Um, that's what they're, that's what they're um, going for. And think back to, again, the image of the beast. He is given the power to kill those that don't worship the beast. How is he going to do that? This is possibly a way that that's going to happen. So is as far-fetched and outlandish as this seems, um, <clears throat> perhaps this is how that beast will have the power. You think about how big the world is, billions of people on the planet, all the way around the world. Um, will this, how will this image be able to really understand everything that's going around a lot, going on planet-wide? How will that happen? Um, and so these are the kinds of questions that uh, these issues could potentially be, um, be answering. Uh, these soldiers then could be, you know, agents of the, the, the image, if you will. 
Uh, they'd have more accurate decision-making um, abilities. Soldiers and special forces units would have just this best, the best equipment. Um, and so using their weapons that could be controlled using their minds. We talked about the, the eyes, bionic eye that could see to analyze the, the patterns in their surroundings um, and, and doing these covert type missions. Um, again, will this come reality? Don't know, but it's possible. Um, spy agencies, again, could become unstoppable. So it could become standard for a spy agency operatives to have enhanced physical cognitive abilities. Um, so it says, however, it may be difficult to use certain implants in their bodies uh, if in metal detectors and body scanners at airports. So spies in the future will likely have microscopic surveillance devices capable of infiltrating the most secure locations in the world. They could transmit information back to intelligence agencies without detection. I mean, this is stuff you see, again, in, in, in fiction, like James Bond type stuff. Uh, spies could have invisibility suits, cloaking devices. Um, advanced spy agencies could use mind-reading software to analyze the memories of captured suspects. Uh, at the very least, there would be less of a need for enhanced forms of interrogation, such as waterboarding or uh, other things. It looks like we're going to finish this up tonight. Uh, number 19, transhumanists could lose all privacy. Again, we talked about that a little bit before, but um, if brain-computer interfaces are implanted in people's minds, uh, could allow companies and governments to monitor, easily control the thoughts of millions of people. Uh, biometric tracking, surveillance technologies, uh, which we already have some of, as I mentioned, face re facial recognition software and cameras, uh, but think of that in, in an even more advanced state, could make it near impossible for most people to go on Earth, on Earth to go into hiding. And we talked about those that don't worship the image of the beast. How will they survive? Well, most of them won't. Will they use this kind of technology to accomplish that? Possibly, possibly. They're going to have to have something that allows them on a global scale to know what's, what's going on um, and to, to be able to understand if there are underground churches, for example, um, how will those be, be dealt with? Possibly uh, using these kinds of technologies. The last one. Number 20, creativity would be at an all-time high as humans integrate their minds more and more with AI and computers. So again, this is kind of a neutral um, possibility, uh, thinking of the creativity issue. The level of creativity in the world would exponentially increase. It could lead to entirely new forms of art and entertainment. Could be good, could be really bad, depending on what it is. Uh, humans could gain the ability to imagine movies in their minds have uh, AI that's enhanced as movies and then telepathically share those movies with millions of other people, all within the span of one minute, uh, depending on the connection. Uh, reach, we could reach the point where we create entire VR worlds using our thought patterns. If you think about that, we already have technology that um, put on those big goggles. If you've seen those, virtual reality, where you, it looks like you're in this whole, totally different room, totally different world. Uh, but think of that going on without the goggles and just uh, in the mind um, being able to experience that. Uh, we can invite friends to those worlds. We could choose elements instantaneously. Um, we could try to have multiple human minds and uh, into one digital entity. And so 
I don't know, again, some of this sounds kind of crazy, but we, we started with the, the verses there in Revelation 13. This image of the beast will have the ability to kill those who don't worship itself, don't worship the beast. How are they going to accomplish that? So it's somewhat of a speculation, but what we're doing is we're not sharing this as, well, this is what we think might happen. Um, this is actually being, being promoted. This information is out there. This is what people are thinking about. Um, and like I said at the beginning, this is all based out of a video uh, that Pastor Rich found or someone sent him. I, I'm not sure um, how he came across it, but if you're interested in the video, we can send you the link. You can watch this. We're just reading you some of the transcript from it. So transhumanism, will it, will it become a thing? Maybe. Um, the point is, though, that um, according to Revelation 13, that image will have the power to kill those that don't worship. But as we looked at in Matthew 24, um, almost the entire world, the majority of the world's population is going to die, sadly, in the tribulation. And so will the quest for the fountain of youth, if you will, be realized, maybe partially, but ultimately, like I said before, like God's word says, it is appointed for man once to die. And so death is going to come, whether it's to a normal human or to someone that is um, enhanced, that has these you know, abilities that we're talking about. So you can take that stuff for what it's worth, um, and I'm sure there's, there's a lot more to say about it. But um, we'll, we'll uh, pause on that for now and jump into our Acts study. So we are going to jump into Acts 19 today, and so uh, we'll be looking at Paul's third missionary journey continued. Paul started back in Acts 18, as we looked at last week, but uh, now we're going to uh, go into Acts 19. We'll start at verse 1. Um, we will go back and review a little bit from last week, however, to clear some things up. But I just wanted to bring us up to speed uh, geographically. So Paul's third missionary journey, he leaves uh, Syria. He goes up into what we call today modern-day Turkey, okay? what they referred to back then as Asia Minor uh, in the ancient world. So that's the areas of Galatia and Phrygia. So Paul is passing through this area. He's visiting churches. He's encouraging the brethren. He is um, probably doing some teaching, some encouragement, some, some help establishing the churches that he, that he planted along the way. And uh, last week, we looked at um, the ministry of Apollo. So I just want to do a quick review of that and uh, make sure that there, we make the necessary correction, something I mistakenly said last week and uh, was pointed out, which I'm so thankful for. Um, regarding Apollos, um, in verse in the in previous verses, we won't take the time to look at them, but in Acts 18, um, towards the end of the chapter, we meet this man named Apollos. And remember that Apollos was a very gifted speaker. He was dynamic. Um, he could really draw a crowd. He knew how to speak. He knew how to engage people. And so he comes into Ephesus, and he goes into the synagogue, much like the Apostle Paul does when he comes into a city, and he starts teaching. And he's doing a good job, except for that he's lacking some information. And so if you remember, Aquila and Priscilla, they heard him. Here in verse 26, and notice, they took him aside 
and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So they, they're sitting there, they're listening to him. Man, this guy is gifted. He's really doing a good job, except for he's missing some key theology. And so Priscilla and Aquila step in as mentors, as disciplers, and help Apollos learn the truth, get him set on the right track. And then in verse 27 is where I want to focus on mostly. It says, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So the he in verse 27 is indeed Apollos, not Paul. And so that's where I, uh, that was the mistake that we made last week. But so Apollos now, he's, he's coming to Ephesus. He's on fire. He's teaching. He's raring to go, but he's incomplete in his theology. So Aquila and Priscilla arm him. Now he's armed with the truth. His, te- his teachers have enabled him to teach more perfectly. And what does Apollos do with this knowledge? He wants to share it. He's like, okay, great. Now I see the truth. Now I'm ready to go. Um, And he wants to go and and spread it. So he desires to share it. He's passed the test, so to speak. Um, It's not really an ordination uh, per se, but, but the brethren, notice it says that the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So Apollos comes into Ephesus. He's a good speaker, but he he needs help. He needs more training. He needs more truth. He gets that truth. He gets trained by Aquila and Priscilla to the point of where when he starts teaching again, he is now ready. He has the knowledge. He has the maturity, and he's doing a great job. He's teaching. He's preaching, and he wants to go further. He's like, I want to keep sharing this. He has a missionary's heart, much like the Apostle Paul did. And he's, he wants to go across to Achaia. Remember, across the Aegean Sea, west from um, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, is Achaia, modern-day Greece, where Corinth was located. Um, so he wanted to go over there and, and share the truth and, and help that church um, and to refute the Jews publicly. In other words, tell them, hey, the Messiah has come. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He died on the cross, but he's resurrected. And now he's armed with the truth of uh, believer's baptism. Before, remember, he only knew about the uh, baptism of John the Baptist, and now he's, he's got a more full understanding. So he, he wants to go over there. So this, uh, the brethren, the elders of the church of Ephesus, write this letter of recommendation. They say, hey, church at Corinth, we commend this guy. He is a great teacher. We totally endorse his ministry and you guys need to listen to him. He has been a blessing to us here in Ephesus, and we know he's going to be a blessing there. And so they write this letter, and they send it with him, and uh, he continues to be used of God to do the work of the ministry. So I, I want to just go back and touch on that because it's, it's such a great picture of someone that is growing in their abilities, growing in their gifts, and is teaching and preaching the word and gets... Uh, a proper correction, takes the correction. Uh, we mentioned this last week that um, Apollos could have been pretty arrogant and prideful with his gift. 
but instead he takes the correction. He, the, the teacher becomes the student again. And he, we know he was a student down in Alexandria. It said he was a very learned man. So he just went back to that role and said, okay, I got to go back to school again. I got to learn a little more. I don't have it all right. And so he allowed himself and um, subjected himself to that teaching and now takes that and moves on to the next, uh, the next place that God has for him. So just a good example. Now, when he arrived in Corinth, he created quite a following, not on his own, I don't believe, but um, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul rebukes them uh, because some of them had formed this Apollos party, this Apollos club, if you will. And uh, Paul's correcting them. Um, now I say this, that each of you, Corinthian Christians, says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, meaning Peter, or I am of Christ. So there was this division in the church of Corinth, um, and Apollos, the same Apollos that we read about in Acts uh, 18 and 19 here, um, was one that they singled out as like, that's the speaker I'm going to follow. That's the guy I'm going to, I'm not going to worry about Paul. I'm not going to worry about Peter. Um, Apollos is the guy. And um, so this, this idea of creating these different sects within the church um, is a problem, right? It's a, it, there's division within the church. There's disunity. So Paul is writing about that. Nowhere is it indicated that Apollos promoted himself in this way. And we don't see that Paul reproved him ever. Paul did reprove Peter. We read about that in Galatians when Peter went back to uh, his former views of uh, Jews and Gentiles being separate that God has joined together. But we don't see Paul doing that to Apollo. So I don't believe that Apollos um, made himself out to be somebody to follow apart from the other apostles. I think it just uh, the, the people of Corinth, for whatever reason, decided to, uh, to do that. So now we're down in, in Ephesus as we begin Acts uh, 19. And so Paul has been traveling through the, that whole region, and he comes now into Ephesus as we start here in Acts 19, verse 1, which says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. All right. <clears throat> Let's talk about Ephesus for a moment, and then we'll get into verse 2, which is a hotly debated passage of Scripture. And it's kind of hard to understand. It's difficult. Um, but let's first talk about uh, Ephesus. So this is a major part of Paul's ministry. This is like a pinnacle, if you will. And we'll talk about that later, Lord willing, um, tonight. But he comes to Ephesus. Um, this becomes Paul's base of operation during this journey. Uh, he, Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis or Diana, depending if you're looking at the Roman name or the Greek name. Um, this, was, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. According to the ruins that, that can be measured today, uh, this was 239 feet wide and 418 feet long, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. This was a massive structure. I don't have any pictures to show you of the ruins tonight, but <clears throat> uh, it was huge. It was this beautiful 
temple um, set up on the hill there, and everyone took pride in, in Ephesus um, in this temple, as we're going to see throughout this, this chapter and into chapter 20. Um, <clears throat> as a commercial center, Ephesus was the leading city of the province of Asia. Uh, its present-day extensive ruins reveal the glory of its past. I mean, this was, this was one of the most thriving cities of the ancient world. Um, much like we read about with Corinth and other places that are just this massive metropolis, if you will, of the day. Uh, during Paul's time, the city was approaching its zenith. So <clears throat> um, this was probably one of the reasons why Paul wanted to go here. It's one of the reasons why there needed to be a church here. Uh, this was a, a major epicenter. It was a major place of travel. It was a port city at this time. Um, <clears throat> So this would have been a very logical place to come and set up a church because you're going to get a lot of people passing through. Uh, it's, there's a lot of people that live there. Uh, it's heavily populated. So um, <clears throat> Paul, uh, it makes sense that he would be there. Now let's get into verse 2 here. Notice Paul's question. He's, first of all, in verse 1, he finds some disciples. So who are these disciples? <clears throat> they're not named. We know later that there's 12 men that we're talking about here. Uh, but the question is, were these men saved before Paul came or did they get saved when he came? And <clears throat> there's scholars on both sides of this, okay? I don't think it, it is a huge dogmatic uh, doctrinal issue that we know for sure the answer to that question and it like affects all this other stuff. I think it, it kind of can be either or. Um, I, it seems, though, that they were believers. First of all, Luke calls them disciples. Now, that doesn't necessarily by itself mean that they had believed in Christ. Remember that the Pharisees had disciples that did not believe in Christ. One of the 12 disciples did not believe in Christ, Judas, right? So you can be technically a disciple in a sense or have be a disciple to somebody without being a believer in Jesus, okay? <clears throat> and so, but it does seem to point to the fact that they were because Paul's questioned them. Notice he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you what? Believed. I think that's the key word to understanding, answering the question. In almost every instance of this word in the Greek, in the New Testament, it is used of belief or trust. Of the 269 times it's used in the New Testament, 132 of those times, so almost half, they're in direct reference to believing in Jesus, specifically Jesus Christ. So based on that word uses, I believe these men were indeed believers. Um, <clears throat> I think they had been saved, but had not been educated about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that the book of Acts describes a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily give us one pattern. There's multiple ways that things happen, and they happen in different orders, depending on what passage you read in the book of Acts. So... <clears throat> 
did things happen or do things happen today as far as how salvation works and how the spirit comes to indwell today? Do they happen today the same way they did back in this transition time from going from the Old Testament to the church age? Um, We're going to show you, no, they didn't. So there's no set way uh, that things happen in Acts. Um, And so um, he says, when you believe. So were they believers? I believe so because Paul says that they believed, all right? And his question here um, was, I think, more about the gifts of or the experience of the filling of the Spirit, not necessarily the indwelling of the Spirit. I think you could argue the other way too. So I'm, I'm... I'm not going to, you know, make a dogmatic stand on this. This is just based on the wording and the text. I think these were saved guys, uh, although it is possible that they got saved um, at some point, but you have to read between the lines and the verses to see it because it doesn't come out and say it uh, in these verses. Now, the wording here is a little clumsy where it says, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. If we were to say that today in our modern way of speaking, it seems like what they're saying is they didn't even know the Holy Spirit existed, right? If we just read this on the surface level, it's like um, how could they be saved or how could they know anything about what, what's true about salvation? They don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit, but that's not actually what they're saying. Um, for one thing, if they, we find out later that they were disciples of the teachings of John the Baptist, John the Baptist taught about the Holy Spirit. It was one of his main teachings. Uh, If you've been with us in our Mark study, you know that back in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, this is John the Baptist speaking. I indeed baptize you with water, but he, speaking of the one to come, the Messiah, will baptize you with the what? Holy Spirit. And the other accounts, the other gospel accounts back this up. John the Baptist knew all about the Holy Spirit, okay? He taught about the Holy Spirit. Anyone that was a disciple of his would have known about the Holy Spirit. So these guys that Paul runs into in Ephesus are not saying that they didn't know that there existed a Holy Spirit. They were fully aware of him, his existence. What they're saying is we didn't hear yet that what John the Baptist Baptists taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit has happened yet. That's actually what they're saying. They knew about him. They just didn't, hadn't been um, taught. They were immature in their theology, just like who that we just talked about? Apollos, right? So it's a very similar theme here that we see going on. Um, <clears throat> let's continue on. Verse 3, Paul's speaking again, and he said to them, in Into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Just like Apollos. They were, I believe, believers, but they probably had learned even less at this point than Apollos had when he first came to Ephesus. Remember, it said that he was a learned man in the ways of the Lord, is specifically said. Um, These guys knew a little bit. I think they knew enough to believe but they hadn't been taught yet. Remember, Acts is a time of transition. We have the benefit of the canon of Scripture. We can open this book up and read about this stuff. 
These guys didn't have this yet. The church was still expanding through the ancient world. There wasn't, not all the knowledge had been shared to every uh, far-reaching group of, of believers of whom these guys were part of. And so <clears throat> it's likely that um, so, some commentators will say that these guys were maybe disciples of Apollos at one time, but had not, but had left and come back. That's possibly true. Or they had come into Ephesus after Apollos left and they for some reason weren't connected to the same synagogue where Aquila and Priscilla were. We're not given all these details, but for whatever reason, much like Apollos, these men had not been fully taught yet. They were believers, but they were immature. And so Paul does for these men exactly what Aquila and Priscilla did for Apollos, explain to them the way of God more accurately. That's the words that are used earlier. Uh, So Paul says to them, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people, the Jews and proselytes, remember that was John the Baptist's main ministry, getting the Jewish people ready for their Messiah, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And then we get to the next verse in verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't say that they believed on the Lord and then were baptized. It just says that they were baptized. What comes first in New Testament baptismal theology? Belief or baptism? Belief always comes first. So this is, again, why I tend to lean toward the fact that these men were believers. Um, It could have been Paul that baptized. It could have been someone else. But they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, I think it even says this in your notes. This is the only place in the New Testament that refers to anyone being re-baptized. So it kind of opens up some some questions like, okay, why did they get rebaptized? Um, first of all, it says, I, I want to cover this quickly. It's that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think it's implied there that it was also the Father, Son, and Spirit, just like um, the, the pattern that Jesus gives in the Great Commission, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's implied in that statement. Um, why were they rebaptized though? Well, we, it doesn't give us the answer. So we don't want to speculate too much. We do know that it, there's no record that Apollos was rebaptized. He only knew of the baptism of John the Baptist. Was he rebaptized? It, it doesn't say that. Um, we also have the, some of the Jesus disciples like uh, Andrew, the brother of Peter, and I believe Philip were both disciples of John the Baptist. Were they rebaptized when they started following Christ? The Bible doesn't tell us that. Um, but it's just interesting that this is the only place in Scripture that we see a re-baptism. Uh, it could have been that Apollos was rebaptized, and the Bible didn't tell us. Or it could have been that this was a voluntary baptism. This is something that they wanted to do. They weren't really required to, but they, they wanted to do it. They wanted to um, <clears throat> uh, take that next step of, of obedience. And so they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now in verse number six, it says, and when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke 
with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So again, this is where some might argue, I don't think they were, I think they got saved and then baptized and then the Holy Spirit. I want to show you some some other records from uh, the book of Acts that put things in different order um, and, and explain a little bit and hopefully clear up some of that. But in any case, um, <clears throat> I believe these men were previously indwelt by the Spirit just like we are. When we are saved, um, in Ephesians 1, it says we are sealed by the Spirit. I believe he comes in and dwells. I think the Bible's clear on that. He indwells us. But does he necessarily fill us all the time? No, he doesn't. And we'll look at some scripture about that in a moment. But I believe that at this, it's at this point where it says the Holy Spirit came upon them. This is where they're filled. They, they needed to be corrected. Paul corrects them. They have a heart of learning and, and um, wanting to grow in their faith. And they are submissive to God. They are submissive to God's apostle. They are submissive to the Spirit. So the Spirit fills them. And he gives them these sign gifts of speaking in tongues and prophesying. So this authenticated some things. First of all, it authenticated the spirit being in them, right? It also authenticated the apostleship of Paul. So here is another evidence that Paul was indeed an apostle. He calls himself the least of the apostles. But remember, later in his ministry, there were some Christians in some of these churches that he had planted that were questioning his apostleship. Remember this? And, and so he's defending it. This is, an, this is an evidence that Paul was an authentic apostle of Christ. He was a called one, a sent out one. It's also interesting, this is the last recorded occurrence of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. We don't read about it again after this. So, I mean, that's neither here nor there necessarily, but uh, it is something to note. Um, It's also important, as I stated before, that the reception of the Holy Spirit in Acts, this filling of the Holy Spirit, does not follow any set pattern. Um, He comes into believers and fills them sometimes before baptism and sometimes after baptism and sometimes when an apostle lays their hands on them. So I want to look at some passages um, that talk about that. But first of all, notice, um, going back to the, this idea of being filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Is this verse written to believers or unbelievers? Believers, right? Christians, the church at Ephesus, the very people that possibly are the part of the, these 12 men are part of this church. So it's a command to Christians to be filled. That means that we are indwelled, but we're not always filled. He's saying to them, I want you, Christians at Ephesus, that are indwelt by the Spirit, because I told you that you were back in Ephesians 1 when I said you were sealed. But now I'm giving you some expanded teaching on the Spirit. I want you to have the Holy Spirit not only living in you, which he does when you believed, 
but I want you to be always under his complete control. To be filled with the Spirit is to be surrendered to the Spirit. Paul's saying, submit to him. Follow his lead. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And we aren't always filled by the Spirit, are we? That's why Paul has to command us to be. And so we see the contrast between the indwelling and the filling. Now let's look at some passages that have this filling happening in different orders and talk about why that would be. First of all, in Acts 10.44, the Spirit fills believers before baptism. So in Acts 10.44, Peter has had this vision, you remember, on the roof of the sheet, the big um, blanket, if you will, with all of these animals, clean and unclean, and it says rise and eat. And Peter's like, I'm a Jew, I don't eat those. And that happens three times. And, and God in the vision says, you can't call unclean what I have made clean. I'm putting an end to that tradition, that, that law of the clean and the unclean. The law is ending, Peter. You're going to go have ministry to Gentiles now. And this vision was getting him ready. So the vision ends. A couple guys show up at the gate, say, hey, Cornelius, uh, this Gentile, this Roman centurion, once has had a vision and said, come, go to Joppa, find Peter. He's staying at this guy's house. Go get him and bring him to your house. So we're here to do that. The Holy Spirit says, go, Peter. This is what it's all about. So Peter comes in and to the house, and it's filled with Gentiles. Okay? So Peter, man, it must have been very awkward, very uncomfortable. He's used to his Jewish roots, and he has a hard time with that, but the Spirit gives him the strength. He walks into the house, and he starts preaching the gospel to them. In verse 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So as they start to believe what Peter's saying, the Holy Spirit comes in and falls upon them. If you read the passage, they're not baptized yet. They get baptized later in the passage. And Peter says, What's, what prohibits us? What stops us from baptizing these Gentiles just like we've been doing with uh, the Jewish believers. So here, the Holy Spirit fills believers before baptism. Back in Acts 8, though, we see it happening after baptism. In verses 14 to 16, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had not fallen upon for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Sound familiar? Sounds just like what we read in Acts 19 when Paul the apostle meets a group of believers and is asking about the Spirit. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if you keep reading through the passage, they lay their hands on them just like Paul does to those guys in Ephesus back in Acts 19 and the Spirit comes on them. So we have the Spirit falling on people before baptism. We have the Spirit falling on people after baptism. We need to understand, though, that for us today, we're not, we're not living in a transitional time anymore, are we? That was for the book of Acts. So as we're reading these different passages and we're seeing things happen in different orders, we, we can't try to grab one of those and say, okay, this is how it has to happen today. 
we have to leave it where it is and where it sits in its context in Scripture and understand that that's happening to those people in that specific time for God's specific reasons. The book of Acts has much by the way of description, but less by the way of prescription. Acts is much more descriptive than prescriptive, okay? It's describing what happened in the past. It's giving us the historical accounts. It's helping us know what happened during the formation of the early church. Not necessarily prescribing to us how things should happen today in 2023 in our New Testament church. And we know that because of all the different ways. Um, this is a, a quote from, from the uh, New American Commentary. It says, as throughout Acts, there is no set pattern. The Spirit came at various times and in various ways. Haven't we just seen that in Scripture? What is consistent is that the Spirit is always a vital part of one's initial commitment to Christ and a mark of every believer. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, Christians, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Not fills you specifically, dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So in the book of Acts, all kinds of different ways that the Spirit falls on people and gives them their gifts. Sometimes it's before baptism. Sometimes it's after baptism. Sometimes it's laying on of hands by apostles. Other times nobody touches them and the Spirit falls on them. There's no set pattern. So we can't go to Acts and grab something and try to bring it into our present day context. We have to leave it where it is and understand the Spirit indwells us at salvation. And according to uh, Ephesians 5.18, we need to surrender to him if we're going to be filled. So I hope that's clear. I hope that makes sense. Um, and, and we need to keep that in mind. As you go through Acts, as you're studying through it, remember, mo- a lot of what you're seeing and reading is a description. Now, there's lots of prescription in Acts too. There's tons of instruction about how to get along together as a church. Even back in Acts 2, remember that they were breaking bread together. They were going from house to house. They were fellowshipping together. They were sharing their, their wealth with one another. Uh, this Christian didn't have as much as this one, so they shared with them. Should we be doing that stuff today? Yes. And I, I appreciate this church, how it does that today. I've been the recipient of it recently. So there are prescriptive things. There are instructions for us out of the book of Acts. It's not like we throw the whole book aside and say, well, all of that is, um, you know, that's how it happened then. We have to do something different now. That's not what we're saying. Um, There is teaching like that, hyper-dispensationalism that says you can't, you can only look at Paul. You can't even, don't even bother reading the gospels and Acts and all that. That's, that's, that's not what we're saying, okay? All scripture is given by God. All scripture is profitable, for us, right? All scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. We look at all of it, but we have to see it within its context, and that's, um, that's an important part of reading Acts. Just like if we, we read the Old Testament. Did the Holy Spirit come on people in the Old Testament? Yes, came on uh, King Saul, remember? He prophesied uh, for a while, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit came upon David. Did the Holy Spirit leave Saul at times? Yes, and, a, and an evil spirit came upon him. David prayed in the Psalms, Lord, don't let your spirit leave me. 
We don't have to pray that anymore, though, right? The Holy Spirit indwells us. He seals us. Uh, he is the down payment for our future salvation, and we take great comfort in that. So we look at Acts just like we look at every other part of Scripture in its context and what's going on there, and that helps us understand exactly how to interpret it. So in verse 6 and 7, again, Paul lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. And then in verse 7, it says, Now the men were about 12 in all. Some have taken this little verse, verse 7. Now, I've stated this before. Every verse is important. Every verse needs to be examined and understood. But some have made this verse into, into bad teaching, if you will. Um, the reference to 12 men does not imply in any way that, as some have suggested, that the church is the new Israel. Um, that replacement theology that, that's often taught that God is done with Israel and the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Um, there's a lot of problems with that. I'll give you one that's pretty simple and straightforward all of God's covenants to Israel that he has yet to fulfill are to Israel. There's never an indication that those covenants are for anyone else but Israel. And the church is never spoken of in the Old Testament, right? It's the mystery that God revealed in this age. He did not reveal it to the prophets. They did not know about the church age. So if the church is not revealed in the Old Testament, how can those old uh, Old Testament covenants for the Jews apply to us today. They cannot. And there's a lot more um, arguments for that, but that's just one that is important. Um, and so if there's any significance to this number uh, at all, it is that this fullness of the Spirit is yet to be experienced by Israel. In your notes, there's some um, passages to look up um, for for you, um, you can, there's, um, uh, I think there is, yeah, on the, on the back of your notes there, at the top, uh, where it talks about the 12 men there in 19.7, um, there's Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, Joel 2, 28 to 32, and Zechariah 12, 10 to 14. You can look those up and see um, how that the Holy Spirit will come upon Israel at some point in the future. Now, today, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So if a Jewish person gets saved today, they believe in Christ. Does the Holy Spirit indwell them? Yes. Um, and he can fill them when they submit to him, just like us. So it's, there's no difference that way. Um, but this is specifically um, prophecies related to Israel itself. So as we consider this, um, it's obvious that the transitional book of Acts is not to be used as a doctrinal source on how to receive the Holy Spirit. So just keep that, keep that in mind as we read through, as we study. All right, let's move on past these guys. And um, likely, these 12 men uh, formed kind of the nucleus of the church at Ephesus. Uh, they were probably be, grew in their faith um, and were joined to that church and uh, continued to connect with uh, the believers there. So in uh, Acts 19.8, Paul, after talking to these men and laying his hands on them, he goes into the synagogue, which is his um, uh, consistent form of ministry, to go to the Jewish synagogue first, 
says, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, for the apostle Paul to spend three months somewhere without any opposition is probably a record for him. Usually, I mean, back in, over in Thess- Thessalonica, how long did he spend there before it started to get heated? It was three Sabbaths, right? Three weeks. Here it's three months. He's able to talk with them. Uh, and, and so he takes advantage of that. He continues. Uh, notice that Paul is using his time wisely. He's staying on mission. He's taking the time to reason with them, he, to persuade them, to see the truth of Scripture that their Messiah had come. He's telling this to these Jews and probably proselytes in the synagogue. Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. He has come. Everything promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in him, past, present, and future. It's all fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Here's what happened. Here's how his life was. Here's how he died. And here's the story, the account of his resurrection. And there are eyewitnesses. You can go talk to them. They're in Israel right now. Go visit. There's hundreds of eyewitnesses of his resurrection. These are the kinds of things he was probably telling them, uh, talking about the kingdom of God also. Um, It says that he spoke boldly. He spoke boldly in the synagogue, just like Apollos did. And so for whatever reason, these Jews were much more open-minded than in some other places. Um, that we've seen even as we've studied through uh, the book of Acts. Remember that Apollos had just been teaching here in the same synagogue, right? And he was able to speak boldly. And so now Paul comes in and he's able to do the same thing. So um, if you look back in chapter 18, verse 21, you see uh, another evidence why he was able to speak so long. Um, if, If you look back at the verse, I don't have it on the screen, but uh, it says in there, actually, I'll just read it. Uh, Paul, Paul's leaving them. It says, but he took leave of them saying, I must be all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Sorry, I meant to read verse, excuse me, verse 20. Paul's in Ephesus and he's in the synagogue. He's reasoning with the Jews in verse 19, but in verse 20 of Acts 18, it says, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. But then, and then it goes into verse 21 where he says, I'll be back if I can, but I have to leave. I'll return again to you, God willing. So for whatever reason, these guys wanted more of what Paul had to say before he left. So he leaves, he goes back, then he comes back through Asia Minor visiting those churches, and now he's back in Ephesus. He's able to fulfill the promise, so God was willing for him to come back. So It doesn't give us all the reasons why, but these Jews wanted to listen. They wanted more, right? They wanted to hear more about him, about this um, Jesus of Nazareth uh, and Paul's teaching out of the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament was just beginning to be written, if at all. It was not widely circulated. So Paul is is using the the Old Testament scriptures as a way to uh, preach his message. Um, And there's the verses. I did have them up there. In verse 9, though, we finally meet some opposition. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he, meaning Paul, 
departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So, again, Paul's ministry is flourishing in in Ephesus in ways that we don't see it happening in many of the other cities that he has planted churches in. This is a major development for his ministry. Uh, Let's look at some of the the words here. First of all, the term the way was used uh, to speak of believers in the first century. It was used to help people differentiate, differentiate, between Christians and mainline Jews. Remember, uh, both belief systems are rooted in the same God. And so um, there's obviously differences, um, big differences, eternal differences. But uh, for those that were not familiar, um, a Christian talking about God and a Jew talking about God, it could be confusing. So uh, these were called the way. Um, Notice, though, that some were hardened, some were hardened. That's a key word. Uh, This means that there were those in the synagogue that came to the point of refusing to accept any more information from Paul. It's as if they've been listening to him uh, for three months, or maybe they were there before when he was in Ephesus before this, back in chapter 18. But for whatever reason, their hearts were hardened. They were hardened against what Paul is saying, which means, like I said, they came to this point of refusing to accept any more information. It's like when the ground is really, really hard and you have a big rainstorm, what's going to happen? You're going to have a what? A flash flood, right? Because the water is not going to soak into that hard, baked ground. It's going to just pass right over it. Well, that's kind of an example, if you will, of the hearts of these these people in the synagogue. They had, for whatever reason, hardened their hearts against the truth. Uh, they were, uh, this is a moral hardness. It's a stubbornness. It's a stiff-necked uh, attitude. And so what does Paul do? He moves his teaching venue. Um, the hardened hearts were starting to stir up strife. They were starting to affect the ministry negatively. The word there, the phrase, but spoke evil. Uh, This means that they were being verbally abusive. It was verbal insults, attacking Paul, attacking the other believers, attacking the teaching that he was doing, causing a problem. So Paul says, I'm just going to just relocate then. He doesn't pack up and leave town. He just relocates his ministry to a place where he can teach uh, and can share the truth without him and his disciples, the believers, coming under the slander of these hardened uh, people in the synagogue. Uh, It talks about that he, notice that he departed and withdrew the disciples. So Paul is taking the lead. He's taking a leadership position. He's the one calling disciples, withdrawing them away from the synagogue um, and calling them to a different location. It talks about reasoning daily in the school of this Tyrannus. So um, uh, apparently this man named Tyrannus 
uh, made his lecture hall available to traveling teachers. And a lot of the um, Gentiles, the Greeks, if you will, in the regions, when Paul would come in, he came across like, like a traveling teacher. And in the culture, there was a lot of these guys. Uh, I think they were called sophists or something like this. I didn't write it down, but um, they would travel around town, from town to town, kind of an itinerant type of ministry. And a lot of it was to make money. A lot of it was to um, kind of garner support for themselves. And so a lot of times Paul was accused of being one of those types of people. Well, uh, of course, in a sense he was, but he was sharing the truth. And so um, Tyrannus made this available to anybody that wants to come in and teach. It was kind of this open forum. So Paul's like, hey, there's a spot I can go. Um, I'm welcome there. I can go and share. And so he gets his disciples, the other believers, and says, come on, let's go over here. Um, Certainly they probably were still meeting in in homes at times, um, but this was a place for him to have a a venue, if you will, a platform where he could speak to to the group, speak to people that were interested, unbelievers and believers alike. Um, one Greek manuscript adds the school was available from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So this is when Paul, Paul probably went in there. So um, in this culture at the time, most people would have their noon meal and have this afternoon kind of siesta time, if you will. And so there wasn't anything going on, so Paul would take advantage of that time. Um, in chapter 20, verse 34, we see that Paul worked with his own hands to support his ministry. So probably in the morning before he came in at 11 or, or whatever it was, he would be working, doing his uh, tent making type of work. And then, um, then he would come in and, and speak during the mid-morning to afternoon time. Uh, notice as we conclude here, it says, this continued for two years. Um, if we read in Acts 20, verse 31, it gives a different number, and it's just a little discrepancy that, as we close, I thought we should explain. Um, in Acts 20, 31, um, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's in Miletus. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, remember, and he's going to be arrested there, and his whole ministry is about to change. So instead of traveling to Ephesus, he calls the Ephesian elders down to Miletus, and in Acts 20, verse 31, he says, Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So what was Paul's attitude? What was his passion like as he taught in the hall of Tyrannus? It was with tears. It was passionate. It was on fire teaching daily, helping them understand the truth. But he says, three years, here in Acts um, 19, verse 10, it says, two years. So what's the difference? Well, remember that he spent three months in the synagogue before this. So now we're at two years and three months. And there was a, uh, sorry, I just lost my my train of thought. Um, There was a, it was common back in the, ancient days, to count part of a unit of time as a whole. So if you were somewhere for like seven months or, or three months or part of the next year, you would just kind of count that as the next year. It didn't mean that it was a whole 12 months worth of time. It just meant it was just kind of a, a way of um, describing 
how much time you spent somewhere. It was a little bit elastic, in other words, in how they understood that. So um, this, when he says three years in a couple of chapters, it doesn't necessarily mean a complete 36 months of time. Uh, it's just that he spent over two years. So it, when it was between one year and another, they would kind of round up. I guess that's an easier way of, of saying it. Um, remember, there's no contradictions in Scripture. Okay? Uh, there are some paradoxical statements that are hard to understand, but there are no true contradictions. Uh, most of the supposed contradictions we see, like this one, um, stem from a misunderstanding of the ancient world's customs and the way that they talked and the way that they explained themselves. And so um, uh, we, we need to be reminded of that at times. So um, it's interesting that we see also how far-reaching Paul's ministry had become. I mentioned earlier, this was like a pinnacle of Paul's ministry. This, this, um, this ministry here in Ephesus, not only did he continue for two to three years, but so that all who dwelt in Asia, modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So not only did he have this powerful ministry in Ephesus, but this was expanding. Word was spreading. Remember, Ephesus was a town where people traveled through quite a bit. It was a a city of commerce and trade, and so people from all over were coming, and this was causing quite a stir. Oh, did you hear about the people of the way? No, I haven't. What's the way? Well, they used to be Jews, but now they believe in, in one God. They believe in this man, Jesus, and he died, and they say he rose from the dead. And so things like this traveled quickly, and so Paul's ministry expands. Um, some believe that it was here in Ephesus where Paul most fully realized his calling to be Jesus' representative to the world. God blessed Paul mightily in this ministry of Ephesus. It seems like, although sometimes Luke doesn't describe everything to the detail, but it seems like this, this period of Paul's ministry was one of the most dynamic experiences that he had in his uh, career as God's uh, missionary, God's church planner, pastor, teacher. Um, during this time, it, w- it was probably during this time that the churches at Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis were founded. We read about those in Colossians 4.13. Uh, some believe that all seven churches of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, were started at this time. Now, that can't be asserted dogmatically. We're not building a theology on that. But it suffice to say that Paul's ministry in Ephesus at this time was one of the most dynamic he would ever experience as the word of God spread. It says, uh, all who dwelt in Asia. It's probably using a little bit of hyperbole there when he says the word all, but this is a massive outreach that we're seeing happen. So it's kind of exciting to see uh, this going on. And so, uh, Lord willing, next week, Pastor Rich will be back picking up there at verse 11. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you for the examples that we've seen, uh, the examples of Apollos uh, that we talked about earlier tonight, being willing to be corrected and then go out in the power of the Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the 12 men that um, subjected themselves to the Spirit, submitted to him and to the teaching of Paul. We thank you for Paul and his willingness, Lord, 
to reason for, for three months, um, reasoning with those that, whose hearts were growing harder and harder, and then taking a leadership role, moving his disciples and the church to a, a location where he could truly share, and how you bless that ministry to, to include um, so much, a huge part of Asia Minor at that time, and for the churches that were planted, Lord. We look at what you did through Paul. Sometimes we, I think, um, think that that could only happen at that time. Father, we have the same Holy Spirit in us that Paul had in him. Lord, um, we, we have the same scripture. We have even more scripture than Paul had at his disposal. And Lord, you've given each of us um, an Ephesus of our own. Please, Lord, help us to be bold in sharing. Help us to look for opportunities that lead to gospel conversations. Help us to remember that we have your power. And as long as we have that, Lord, we are unstoppable, just as Paul was at this time. So, Lord, please bless us. Bless our ministry as a church. Bless our ministry as individuals, Lord, as we go out and share your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.